You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hi, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. I have a couple quick notes before we begin today. First, I want to apologize for the long delay between episodes. Life can sometimes get in the way, and that is what happened this time. Thank you for all the emails and notes and comments people had asking when we were coming back, and I'm sorry it has taken so long. Second, I do want to make a pronunciation note regarding today's episode. In this episode, I refer to Maria's River, which is in Montana, as the Marias River, which is wrong. It's Maria's River, and it was just a dorky mistake. So instead of going back and re-recording everything, I just made this little note for the front. Anyhow, that is it. On with the show. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Last time, we followed Lewis and Clark over the Rocky Mountains and down the Columbia River to the Pacific Coast. The Corps of Discovery had accomplished their primary goal, reaching the Pacific Ocean. The trek over the Rockies had been difficult, and the journey down the Clearwater, Snake, and Columbia Rivers had been hazardous, but the expedition had done it. The journey, 3,700 miles, had been completed. The expedition, to this point, had been a success, but there were disappointments. Lewis and Clark had discovered that there was no all-water route to the Pacific, and there was no easy overland passage through the Rockies. Still, the information the expedition had accumulated was invaluable to the young American Republic. Now the Corps had to return home. After spending the winter at Fort Clatsop, not far from the Pacific coast, the expedition departed in canoes heading up the Columbia River in late March of 1806. The journey home for Lewis and Clark was not just about retracing their steps. There was plenty of official work to still be done. First, there were negotiations with the native peoples to conduct. The Pacific Northwest region was, at this juncture, unclaimed by any nation. It was open to exploration and exploitation. The United States envisioned a nation that reached coast to coast, and taking control of the territory would be critical to that plan. Lewis and Clark needed to seek out and strike trade deals and develop friendships with the region's native tribes. Just like back in the Plains, this was how the United States planned to dominate trade in the Pacific Northwest. Second, the expedition needed to find out if there was a better route over the Rockies. The one taken in 1805 was long and dangerous. An easier one was needed. Third, there was the desire to find the northernmost extension of the Missouri River and its tributaries. For this, I want to hearken back to our earlier episodes. Remember, the United States had concluded the Louisiana Purchase in 1803. The exact boundaries of the purchase were in question, but the United States believed that they had bought the lands containing the Mississippi River and its tributaries. The Missouri River was, obviously, a primary tributary, and the Corps had successfully found its headwaters. But what about the tributaries of the Missouri itself? There was the Marias River and the Yellowstone River. Where did these go? The Marias River was of particular importance because it stretched north toward Canada. Depending on where the Marias actually went, this could give the United States a potential claim to these lands. And finally, another item I want to bring up was the story of another river mentioned to Lewis and Clark by the local natives. The Multnomah was supposedly a river that flowed south all the way to the Gulf of California. The captains wanted to find out if such a river existed. All of these were the goals that Lewis and Clark had on their agenda. And let us not forget, they needed to survive this entire experience. They had to go back upriver, cross the Rockies, get past the hostile native tribes on the plains, and return to St. Louis. It was a big task ahead of them. Now, before we get going, I do have one correction regarding our last episode. It's not a huge one, but I thought I'd mention it. Last time, 
I noted that the expedition needed some new canoes to travel back up river. I said that Lewis traded his prized dress uniform for one canoe. Well, that was wrong. It turns out that Lewis offered the uniform up in exchange for a canoe, but the offer was rejected by the Clatsop Indians. This led the Americans to steal a canoe instead, which was not the Corps' finest moment. Anyhow, not a huge deal, but I did want to mention it. The Corps set out in late March. They numbered 34 in total, including the non-military members, such as George Druyer, Toussaint Charbonneau, his wife Sacagawea, their son Pompey, and York, William Clark's slave. The first issue the Corps ran into in the journey east was the powerful river currents. The Columbia was high as snow melted and the rains came down. It made for a hard struggle. Second, they lacked food. The party had managed to get through the winter by trading what they could with the local natives, but they had not managed to put together much of a surplus for the journey east. They were counting on trading more as they went up river, but soon found that the native peoples had little food to exchange after the long winter. The first run of the salmon was weeks away, so everyone, including the Indians, were struggling with a lack of food. Still, the expedition pushed east. The Indians were mostly friendly to the Americans, and they traded when they could. In early April, the expedition set up camp to allow George Druyer and the other hunters to go out in search of game. This allowed the Corps to do some investigating of the Columbia's tributaries, searching for the mysterious Multnomah, the river that went to the Gulf of California. A reconnaissance of the Sandy and Washougal rivers confirmed that they were not good candidates. Clark quickly focused on the Wilmot River. He hired a native guide and led a small group of men to investigate. The mouth of the Wilmot, which is located at present-day Portland, Oregon, had been blocked by an island on the journey the previous fall, and thus was new to the Americans. The Wilmot is a good-sized river, but it is, in reality, less than 200 miles long. William Clark would return from his scouting foray disappointed. The legendary water route to the Gulf of California just did not exist. Or perhaps it was a story of the Colorado River, which was hundreds of miles southwest. So, after the hunting and side trips were concluded, the expedition moved up river, and by the second week of April, they came to the first of the Columbia's major barriers, the Cascades. The expedition would need to portage all their goods in their canoes upriver. Captain Clark took command of the long and dangerous portage, while Lewis remained at the base of the Cascades. The journey, which was more than a mile, was a difficult enough task. And here, the Corps ran into some trouble with the local Indians, a Chinookan tribe, the Watlala. The Americans had almost nothing to trade with the Watlala, who were accustomed to getting some sort of toll for letting travelers pass. When nothing of value was provided, the Watlalas became, quote, sulky and illy disposed, end quote. On April 11th, a Watlala tried to steal a dog from Private John Shields. Shields drew a knife to defend himself, and the man fled. And then later that day, three Watlalas slipped into the American camp and stole semen, Lewis's big Newfoundland dog. Now, before you get too worried about the safety of our favorite dog, rest easy. Because Lewis quickly sent men in pursuit of the thieves, and the Watlalas abandoned semen when they saw that they were being chased by armed men. Lewis, however, was furious at what had occurred, and he ordered his men to shoot anyone who tried to steal the expedition's property. He warned the Watlala chief as well. It was a tense moment, and a very dangerous one. The Americans were spread out on the portage, and if a fight had broken out, the Corps' firepower would have been scattered. Luckily, no shots were fired, and no fighting occurred. But things were tense. The truth is, the journey up the Columbia was a different sort of monster than what the Corps had encountered the previous fall. In the spring, the lower Columbia was swarming with people, as the natives were preparing for the first running of the salmon. The previous fall, there had been many encounters with the local natives, but now the number of Indians was far greater at this time. Plus, many of the natives were edgy and hungry after the long winter. 
and word of the American presence had spread throughout the region, and many of these people wanted to get in on what they saw as a way to get some cool stuff. This meant that tensions were high on both sides. The next day, April 12th, the expedition would suffer a blow when one of the canoes, which was being dragged up the river through the Cascades, was caught in a current and smashed on the rocks. However, despite the loss, the expedition would complete the first passage of the Columbia. On April 15th, a base was set up at Fort Camp Rock, located at the lower end of the Lower Narrows. Here, Lewis and Clark decided to take a new approach to their journey east. Instead of taking the river, they decided to head overland to the Nez Perce villages. The idea was honestly a good one, as going upriver was just too dangerous and too strenuous. The trouble was, to accomplish this, the Corps would need horses. Considering how light the expedition was on trade goods, it would be a difficult task to acquire what they needed. To do this, Clark crossed over to the north side of the Columbia and set up a temporary trading post. Lewis, meanwhile, saw to the portaging and packaging of the expedition's supplies. Clark's attempt to trade for horses would go badly. The prices were high and the expedition's goods were limited. He would acquire only three ragged horses in the first few days. But William Clark was a clever man. He turned to something the natives did not have, and that was his skills as a physician. Clark's doctoring would help soften the prices of the horses with the natives, allowing him to add two more animals. But that would not be enough. They would need to offer real value if they wanted to get some more horses. And thus, the Americans threw in what they had. Ribbon, paint, blankets, and beads. Clark gave up his military coat, his sword, and plume hat. Unfortunately, the natives wanted guns, which they were not getting, and metal goods, such as kettles. Both of these were highly prized by the Americans and weren't going anywhere. Ultimately, the Corps would acquire ten horses, most in poor health. The party would depart from the Lower Narrows on April 22nd, but not before tempers almost exploded. Lewis caught an Indian stealing and responded by beating him. He informed the natives that thieves would be shot. And to demonstrate how frustrated and angry the Americans were with the locals, Lewis ordered all the items being left behind, the canoes, their poles, and paddles, to be burned. The captains were happy to destroy valuable items rather than leave them to the natives who they saw as thieves. But that was not all. At one point, the party's translator, Toussaint Charbonneau, was thrown from one of the horses. The saddle and pad slid from the horse's back, and a native grabbed the pad and ran off. Lewis was angry when the Indian refused to return the item, and threatened to put the local village to torch. Such a move would have been foolhardy, and thankfully, Lewis calmed down and the affair blew over. Meanwhile, the men prepared for the upcoming journey. Luckily, a Nez Perce native offered to guide the expedition east to the Nez Perce villages that had been so helpful the previous fall. Thus, the expedition headed east overland. The trek would be slow due to so few pack horses, as well as the wet and slippery trails. But on the positive side, the Indian tribes they encountered were friendlier. The captains reported nights of dancing and fiddling with the natives, a welcome respite from the cheerless winter and spring months. In late April, the expedition reached a village of the Walla Walla tribe, led by a chief named Yellowpip. The Walla Wallas were relatives of the Nez Perce. Yellowpip was keenly interested in becoming part of a potential American trade machine, so the chief welcomed the members of the Corps with food and a warm place to sleep. Yellowpip would even give Clark a, quote, very elegant white horse, end quote. As a note, a female Shoshone living with the Walla Walla would provide the party with the ability to talk to the local people for the first time in more than half a year. It's something I neglected to mention in the last episode. The isolation of the Americans was partially due to the lack of communication. Short of sign language, the members of the Corps simply could not talk to the natives of the region. 
It makes it hard to build a trusting relationship when no one really knows what is being said. Frankly, nuance can be lost in gestures, making for uncertainty. This meant that wariness, if not downright distrust, ruled the day over the past winter and spring. Anyhow, Yellow Pip informed the Americans of a shortcut to reach the Nez Perce, which was welcome news. The chief would organize a grand celebration for the Americans, inviting a party of Yakima natives to join them. All told, over 500 Indians celebrated with the men of the Corps. The Americans danced and sang and partied with the natives, much to everyone's satisfaction. The big party would be a great success. Plus, William Clark would work his healing on the natives. This all led to more horses for the expedition, and as April drew to a close, the Corps headed northeast toward the Snake and Clearwater Junction. Thanks to the generosity of the Walla Wallas, the Corps now had 23 horses. Rain and sleet and cold would dog the march east. The villages they encountered were friendly to the Americans, but food was still in short supply. It was at this time that the Americans ate the last of their dried meat and any dogs that they had purchased. Then, on May 4th, the expedition ran into a roving band of Nez Perce, led by Tedaharski, the chief who had been with the Americans much of the previous fall. This was a lucky encounter. Tedoharski led the corps to a Nez Perce village. They had little to trade with the natives, but luckily, word of Captain Clark's healing powers had spread throughout the area. The corps traded on Clark's skills for food, including dogs and roots. It would be enough to keep going. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. On May 7th, the Bitterroot Mountains came into view. The Corps' challenge was ahead of them. They also learned that the mountains were still choked with snow. It would be weeks, even months, before they could get crossed. The next day, May 8th, the Americans came across a party of Nez Perce led by a chief named Cutnose. Cutnose was reportedly the most powerful and influential of the Nez Perce chiefs, even greater than Ted Oharsky and Twisted Hair. Speaking of Twisted Hair, the Americans would encounter their old friends shortly thereafter. Unfortunately, they were in for some bad news. Cutnose and Twisted Hair were rivals. Cutnose resented Twisted Hair's interactions with the Americans, and as a greater chief, he felt that Twisted Hair had overstepped his powers by offering so much assistance to the newcomers. Frankly, this smells of jealousy. Cutnose appeared envious of the attention and appreciation shown towards his rival. It made for an uncomfortable and potentially dangerous situation. Lewis and Clark could not afford to have an intertribal rivalry thwart their plans to return east. Also, at this time, another troublesome situation arose. The horses that the Americans had left in the care of Twisted Hair and his band of Nez Perce the previous fall had been scattered. Some had gotten lost, and others had been worn out by hard use. Cutnose and Twisted Hair blamed each other for the situation, forcing the captains to conduct some diplomacy to ease tempers and soothe bruised egos. The captains needed peace and harmony amongst the Nez Perce, they saw the Nez Perce as the key player in the region above the Columbia River. Despite the rivalries on display, the local Indian leaders came together at a village of a chief named Broken Arm. The Corps was in luck, as there was a Shoshone prisoner who could translate for the upcoming negotiations. 
Here, Lewis would get back to his standard message with the tribes. America was going to be the ruler of this land, and he extolled the value of becoming a trading partner with America, and made sure they understood just how powerful the United States was. Also, he preached to the Nez Perce the value of maintaining peace with their neighbors. And finally, Lewis told them that trading posts were coming, which was important to the Nez Perce. For them, this was a critical moment in their history. Like the Shoshone, the Nez Perce were threatened by the Blackfeet and Atsina warriors east of the Rockies. These tribes were supplied by weapons from the British in the north. The Nez Perce desperately needed a way to meet the threats that were all around them. American traders, they hoped, would be their ticket to guns. Guns they felt they needed to survive. Lewis and Clark said that the Americans would force a peace with the tribes east of the Rockies, like the Blackfeet, and this pleased the Nez Perce. In the end, however, not a lot was accomplished with the negotiations, but there was a foundation of a plan that gave the Nez Perce hope. They would love to be part of the American sphere of influence. It would give them a chance to defeat, or at least stand equal footing, with their rivals. However, while very interested in the American plans, the Nez Perce were still wary. They declined to send a delegate to Washington with the party, and they also declined to send a delegate to go speak with the Blackfeet. Such things were just a bit too risky at this time. They needed a steady and powerful American presence in the region before something like that would occur. No matter what was decided, the meeting was successful in gaining the trust and goodwill of the Nez Perce, as well as helping mend the frayed relationship between Twisted Hair and Cutnose. With that done, the Corps of Discovery was able to establish a plan for the journey over the Rocky Mountains. The Nez Perce told them that there was an easier way to reach the Great Falls of the Missouri than the long path they had come in on. The Lolo Trail over the Bitterroot Mountains was still part of the route they needed to take, but the Nez Perce said that there was a trail from what is today's Traveler's Rest to the Great Falls of the Missouri that would save them weeks of travel time. This was exactly what Lewis and Clark wanted to hear. The big problem was the snow. Reports were ominous, saying that no one would be able to cross the mountains until mid or late June. But once ready, Nez Perce guides would be able to lead the Americans east. Thus, in mid-May, the expedition set up a camp amongst the Nez Perce along the north bank of the Clearwater River in what is present-day Idaho County, Idaho. Known as Camp Japanish, I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, the site would become the course home for nearly a month. At Camp Japanish, Lewis and Clark waded out the snows. As they did so, the expedition gathered food for the mountain trek. Hunters brought in game, while the men haggled for any food that could be managed. Paint, needles, pins, ribbon, and anything else was traded for food. Spare bullets were even traded. The men of the Corps began to cut off their brass buttons in exchange for food, and sacks, which was available with the Nez Perce women. Captain Clark helped by trading on his healing skills. He even built a sweat lodge. This reportedly helped a paralyzed native chief regain the use of his hands, arms, legs, and toes. And one of the Corps' men, Private William Bratton, who could barely walk due to back ailments, was able to rid himself of pain for the first time in months after using the lodge. Unfortunately, the hunting in the area was not good, and the price of food was high. Still, the Corps slowly stockpiled food for the upcoming journey. The Americans were lucky that they had such a good relationship with the Nez Perce. Unlike the winter at Fort Clatsop, the time at Camp Japanish featured the Corps engaging successfully with the local natives, this time the Nez Perce. The two sides interacted on a daily basis. Celebrations, sex, games, competitions, and so forth. And there was a bond and a trust that was developed between the two groups. The situation was similar to the relationship between the Americans and the Mandan people in the winter of 1804 and 05. Okay, with that in mind, it is time for a sidetrack to our story. In 1877, photographer William H. Jackson encountered the Nez Perce in this region. He took a photograph of a sandy-haired, blue-eyed native who he was told was the son of William Clark. 
Whether the man was Clark's son, we don't really know, but that he was the offspring of one of the expedition is not far-fetched. In fact, it's likely that there were dozens of offspring amongst the native tribes all along the route of the Corps. As we've talked about in previous episodes, these were young, healthy men in the Corps, and many of the native women along the route were not shy about having relations with the Americans. That Captain Clark participated in such exchanges is not known, but I don't think anyone would be shocked if he had. Anyhow, our sidetrack into sex and speculation is done. Let us move on. Now, as the expedition prepared to depart to the east, Lewis and Clark lined up their ducks and got down to business with the local natives. By early June, they had accumulated 65 horses for their journey, plus food for the men. The Americans wanted to depart, and they asked for someone to guide them over the mountains. However, the request was politely declined at this point. It was just too early, they were told. The trail would just be too difficult to follow, and just as importantly, there would be no grass for the horses to feed on. It would just be too dangerous. The Nez Perce told the Americans to wait. Lewis and Clark held out as long as they could, but they were anxious to move out. Thus, on June 10th, the expedition headed east, to higher ground closer to the Lolo Trail, where the Americans had first met the Nez Perce the previous fall. Here, they readied their departure. Before leaving, a celebration was held, one last big party for the Corps of Discovery and their Nez Perce allies, where there was music and games and dancing. The Nez Perce chief, Cutnose, told the Americans that he would send two of his men to the American camp in the coming days, guides for the journey over the mountains. This news was very welcome. The trek over the Rockies would begin soon. Unfortunately, the men that Cutnose promised never materialized, and the ANSI Americans made a risky decision. They would depart without their native guides. It was, in all honesty, a really, really bad decision. Crossing the Bitterroot Mountains was an extraordinarily dangerous task. In some ways, it displays the arrogance of the American captains. In their journals, there are often comments such as, well, if the Indians can do it, so can we. And this is one of those type of situations. The captains were like, it can't be that hard. But it was hard, and as I said, it was a foolish decision, and almost deadly. For the trip east, each person in the party was mounted and was leading a pack horse. The plan was to eat some of the horses when food ran out. The expedition departed on June 15th. They left in a cold, driving rain, but no snow. They even managed to kill two deer that day and make 22 miles. However, their good luck was about to run out, and very quickly. The next day, the snows came. As the expedition moved into the mountains, winter conditions were everywhere. The snow became 8 and 10 feet deep. On one hand, this helped the party as it covered the fallen timbers and brush that often blocked the trail. But on the other hand, it covered the trail up entirely. No one really knew if they were actually on the right path. And just as important, within a day, there was no grass for the horses. With no guides, the expedition was playing a very dangerous game. By June 18th, it was obvious to everyone that they had made a bad decision. The trek was dangerous, the trail obscured, there was no food for the horses, and the snow was as high as 15 feet. With no guides to aid them, the captains elected to turn around while they still could. If they got too far up the mountainside, there was a danger that the horses, weak from no food, would not be able to get back best turn around while the going was still good. The Corps cashed any supplies that were safe to leave in the mountains and turned around. Everyone was dejected by the failure. Recognizing the need for a guide, the captain sent George Drewyer and Private George Shannon to the Nez Perce camp. They would make an extraordinary offer to the Nez Perce. Three army rifles and ten horses for the man who would lead them to the falls of the Missouri. The offer shows you just how desperate the captains were. They had never considered giving up any of the prized rifles until this time. 
So as the Corps waited for Druyer and Shannon to return, they set up camp at a place where there was sufficient grass for the horses. Luckily, the two men would return on June 23rd with not just one guide, but three. One of the guides was the brother of Cutnose, the Nez Perce chief. The next day, the native guides gave the go-ahead, and the expedition headed back into the mountains. The Corps' cache of supplies was retrieved, and the party made good time that day, despite the poor conditions. This was mostly due to the guides, whose participation was critical. The guides knew where to find grass along the route for the horses, they knew where to find shelter, and they knew how to avoid dangerous spots on the trail. But most importantly, they never lost their bearings. Despite the trail being buried in snow, they never lost their way. Going off the trail just once could easily have doomed the party, but that did not happen. Lewis would write of his deep respect for the Nez Perce guides, none of whom were more than 20 years of age, admitting that the court would not have made it over the mountains without them. He called the men, quote, admirable pilots, end quote. The crossing would go extraordinarily well, despite all the obstacles. The expedition, men and horses, had to push hard each day in order to reach grass for the horses, or a safe place to camp at night. They reached heights of almost 7,000 feet. Lewis would write of the awe and the dread that the mountains inspired. He said, quote, We are entirely surrounded by these mountains, from which one unacquainted with them, it would have seemed impossible ever to have escaped. End quote. On June 29th, the expedition reached the Lolo Hot Springs. The worst of the snow was behind them. All of the men in the Corps, as well as the guides, jumped into the hot springs to celebrate. The native guides would stay in the hot springs for as long as they could, and then jump into the nearby freezing waters, and then back into the hot springs. Captain Lewis reported that he took one bath, and it lasted only 19 minutes due to the intense heat. The next day, the expedition reached Traveler's Rest at present-day Lolo, Montana. They had crossed the Bitterroot Mountains. The expedition had covered 156 miles in just six days. The previous year, the journey had taken 11 days. This shows how essential the native guides had been to the journey. They had managed the trek despite the trail being under 10 feet of snow. And they had known where grass was for the horses, something critical in the mountains. In fact, the horses had gotten grass every day but one on the crossing, so they were all in good shape considering the circumstances. The expedition would recuperate for three days at Traveler's Rest. They had run out of meat, but there was hunting available, as well as roots they had brought with them. Here, Captains Lewis and Clark plotted out their next steps. The Corps of Discovery could easily have just kept going east and focused on going home. The Nez Perce said that the expedition only had to follow the Bitterroot River, then march east along the Clark Ford River to the falls. It was, the Nez Perce said, a well-worn trail easily followed, and it would save the Americans weeks compared to the path taken the previous year. This was great news to find out. This was a big shortcut on the journey that the Americans had hoped to find. But things were not going to be that simple. There was more to the mission than just returning home, and the captains were determined to wring out more discoveries before heading back to St. Louis. Instead of heading home immediately, the Corps of Discovery would break up into several groups. It was a risky, and in my opinion, a foolish decision. But let's discuss the different missions. Lewis would take nine men and 17 horses and follow the Nez Perce route, almost directly east, to the falls of the Missouri. Lewis would leave three men there to dig up the Corps' cache and prepare for the portage past the falls. Lewis would then go to the Marias River to see how far north it went. Remember, this was an important goal, finding the northernmost point of the Missouri's tributaries. Captain Clark would take the rest of the party and head almost directly south, following much of the same route that they had done so on their journey the year before. However, they would take a shortcut through Gibbons Pass and cross the Continental Divide. They would retrieve a cache of supplies they had left the previous year and head to Three Forks. 
At Three Forks, Clark would then take a detachment of men and head down the Yellowstone River and follow it to the Missouri. Sergeant John Ordway and the rest of the men would continue in canoes to the Great Falls, and with the help of the three men left by Captain Lewis, portage all the supplies past the falls. This force would then continue to the mouth of the Marias River and wait for Captain Lewis to return from his reconnaissance. Once all the men were together, they would head east and meet up with Captain Clark at the mouth of the Yellowstone River. Wow, that sounds kind of ambitious, and maybe a little bit nuts. But for now, let us take stock of the situation. It was July 1806. The Corps of Discovery had crossed the Bitterroot Mountains. It was time to cross the Continental Divide and descend out of the Rockies and head east. But Captains Lewis and Clark got, in my opinion, a little too fancy, maybe a little too greedy. They decided to break up the expedition, all the while hoping it would all come together hundreds of miles to the east. It was a risky decision. After all, the men of the Corps had been in the wild for more than two years. Ideally, they should have just taken the easy route east and headed home. Instead, they divided up. This made them vulnerable. Thirty-plus men, armed with modern weapons, were a force to be reckoned with in this region. But groups of three and seven and ten men were a different story. This was the lands of the Blackfeet and the Crows, people that had no reason to be friendly to the Americans. I can only speculate that Lewis really, really wanted to find something great to bring back to Thomas Jefferson with regard to the headwaters of the Marias. If it reached far into Canada, it could give the Americans a claim to the lands to the north. Anyhow, with the course split up and ready to head out, that is where we are going to leave them for today. Next time, we are going to wrap up this epic story, the longest yet on Explorers. We will take the Corps of Discovery east and home. You do not want to miss this, as it is a great tale, highlighted by, and this is not a lie, Meriwether Lewis getting shot in the ass. And with that, we will wrap up. Thank you for listening. I will see you next time for the conclusion of Lewis and Clark and the Corps of Discovery.